Welcome to the Westside Gathering Podcast, and thanks for making the time to learn and grow with us. Here, you'll find teaching from our live Sunday gatherings. After the message, we'll say a little more about our church and how you can connect. But for now, let's jump right in. Well, good morning, and welcome to this, our next stage in the series Transformed for Good. Before we get into the passage for today and, and the discussion I hope to lead you through in it, I have to take a moment and just say happy birthday to my mom. Uh, how many opportunities do you get to say that over the internet, uh, on, on live streaming video? So happy birthday, mom, I love you. Uh, Marilyn Wayne is turning 81 today, and uh, so I just, I just can't uh, give up the opportunity to, to say that. Uh, but let's begin uh, with the passage itself. So Romans 8, 28 to 30 is our passage, and uh, you can follow along with me as I, as I read it. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, when David gave me the opportunity to take part in this series, I jumped right away at Romans 8.28 for a couple of reasons. One, as will become clear, uh, I have a very personal connection to this passage. Uh, but I also just enjoy the mixture of, of theology and just practicality in it. And we see from Romans 8.28, it's addressing real life. All things work together for the good of those called according to God's purpose. And, and then with verses 29 and, 20, uh, 29 and 30, we get to move into some theological discussion of predestination of all things. But before we do that, uh, let's consider uh, this, this uh, book that we're looking in, Romans. And Romans is a, uh, a book of the New Testament that has a number of very well-known verses. Not as well-known, per se, as, uh, as, Romans 3, as, sorry, as John 3.16, but still relatively popular among Christians. We've covered a few already. Take, for instance, Roman 1, Romans 1.16, arguably the thesis of this epistle, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 3.23, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. A couple of verses we may have all memorized uh, as, as children. Uh, Romans 12, verse 12 is also a common reference point, especially when we're discussing, discussing discipleship. Do not be uh, conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And additionally, Romans 13.1 is well known, but maybe not so popular, especially under the restrictions we have faced during this pandemic. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Now, Romans 8 itself, the focus of the present series, contains several Christian standards. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, verse 1. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us, Romans 8, verse 18. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us, Romans 8, 31. 
And the chapter ends with a beautiful flourish in verses 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now the verses I'm listing, I'm suggesting that they are fairly well known to Christians, especially those who have have grown up in the church and have had these verses uh, shared with them and and repeated and and that they were expected to memorize a number of these. Uh, So you may be familiar with these. As we transition with this message, uh, towards the end of the, of the chapter, however, we come to Romans 8.28. We know that all things work for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. This, this verse is, I believe, well known among Christians. But similar to John 3.16, it is also fairly well known outside the church. At least a secularized version of it is. That reads something like, everything happens for a reason. Without going deeply into the philosophical basis for this secularized version of Romans 8.28, let's consider this verse itself. Uh, To be honest, this is a verse that I have hated embedded in a passage I've come to love. This might seem an odd confession for church, but I doubt I stand alone in this view. I am sure some of you in pain and suffering have felt comfort and relief with the words of Romans 8.28. But I'm just as sure that you may not be able to articulate why it is comforting without falling into the secularized version, everything happens for a reason, which we then rebaptize as God must have a reason for putting me through this. But I suspect there are those watching or listening who, like me, struggled with receiving Romans 8.28 as any kind of comfort. Instead, it becomes a bitter pill, frustrating and hurtful, and entirely uncomforting in the deepest moments of grief. This is how I received it in the moments of my sharpest pain. We're recording this actually on July 19th. On July 18th, 1988, my sister Melanie tragically died in our home when she was 11 and I was 17. She had not been diagnosed with epilepsy, but she had a seizure while bathing and she drowned when she passed out and slipped under the water. I spent the first week after she passed away, hungry for God, searching the scriptures for understanding and for comfort, but there were no satisfying answers and a resentment settled into me. And whether I read Romans 8.28 or people wrote it in cards to me or shared it with me when they saw me, I came to despise its message. What good could possibly come from my sister's death? How was it God's will? If it was some kind of straight exchange, something good coming out of her death, then as far as I was concerned, save it. I'm uninterested in hearing anything about it. There's no comfort in that formula. Well, the source of my frustration and pain here is is likely obvious. There is something to untangle, uh, to think through in this scenario. My sister's death was, for me, a personal confrontation with what is known as theodicy, or we may think of it as something like the problem of evil. It's, it's this experience of trying to justify God's power and goodness in the face of evil and suffering. Placed in the context of our present series, we might ask, how can we actually be transformed for good if God appears to have such a loose grasp on it himself? We struggle to make sense of this 
in the face of pain? There are at least two sides to this kind of question. First, there is the intellectual side. How can we make sense of God's goodness and power if suffering and evil exist in the world he has created? How can we understand this and offer a reasonable explanation of it? As C.S. Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity, if a good God made the world, why has it gone terribly wrong? Why is it corrupted by sin and evil? Who is responsible? But this intellectual question that Lewis poses in Mere Christianity is joined for him by an emotional one that he cries out in his book, A Grief Observed. Where is God? The Hebrew scriptures record a similar exclamation from the prophet Habakkuk. Uh, In Habakkuk 1, beginning at verse 2, the prophet writes, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law becomes slack and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous, therefore judgment comes forth perverted. While knowledge of the presence of evil and suffering might raise the intellectual question, the experience of evil and suffering transforms the query into a cry. This is evident in both Lewis and Habakkuk. So theodicy, justifying God's goodness and power in the face of evil and suffering, comes to us not merely as a puzzle, but also as pain. In a grief observed, Lewis articulates well how the emotional aspect of theodicy raises the stakes. He writes, where is God? Not, he says, that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not so there's no God after all, but so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. This is the danger that confronted me with Romans 8.28, and maybe it's a danger that you face even today. The intellectual and emotional problems become entangled as they often do. I was not merely seeking an answer to satisfy my curiosity, I needed a balm for the pain, and one that did not appear readily present in the scriptures I read or in the comfort that I received. The intense and nearly unbearable pain of those first days, weeks, and months did slowly subside. I did find hope and strength in godly love and care for my family and church, particularly a few close friends who seemed specially gifted by God at giving comfort. But I had no immediate answer for the pain and frustration I felt reading Romans 8.28. It was an unhelpful treatment for the tumor of grief that entered my life with Melanie's death. Almost exactly three years after my sister's death, I was on a tour of Ukraine representing Athletes in Action with my college basketball team. Athletes in Action is the athletic arm of Power to Change, and we were on a missions trip there playing various teams in three different cities. Midway through the trip, we took a rest and relaxation break with other Power to Change teams at a resort near a city called Dnipropetrovsk. Uh, I I say that with some kind of weird attempt at a Ukrainian accent, only because I think it sounds weirder when I try to say it without any accent. Uh, But we had each been given a devotional workbook to to, uh, guide us through for some spiritual formation over the course of this trip. And it was walking us through different Proverbs and Psalms. And one evening while we were at this uh, resort, 
uh, I sat down under a tree beside a, a stream that we jokingly referred to as the Chernobyl River because it looked kind of radioactive and certainly uninviting. But I sat there and I read the assigned passage for that day, Psalm 73. It begins, truly God is good to the upright, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. A little further into the passage, the psalmist breaks up the details of his complaints to again articulate his pain and frustration in exclamation. All in vain, he says in verse 13, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I have been plagued and am punished every morning. The the psalmist's words didn't just resonate with my grief. They formed a mirror. It was like the river I sat beside was the psalm, and as I looked into it, I saw myself reflected back in sharp focus. However, with verses 16 and 17, a turning point in the psalm began. They read, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. One of the things I appreciate about the psalmist is even as he's beginning this turning point towards hope, he didn't let go of the reality of of suffering, of pain. So he writes in verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was stupid and ignorant. I was like a brute beast towards you. The reflection of myself became even sharper at that point. Yet, without ignoring reality of of pain and suffering, the psalmist slowly continues his turn towards hope. In verse 23, nevertheless, I, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me with honor. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire than you. My flesh and my heart may, f- may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And the psalmist's you know, repetition of this theme that runs throughout the psalms, that God is our refuge, he is our safe place, he is our rock, uh, it, it touched me deeply in that moment in that time of of still trying to make sense of what had happened in losing my sister. My issues with with Romans 8.28, uh, I'm sorry, uh, were not at that point entirely resolved. I was, however, seeing a bigger picture of God's work in my life and how the gospel offers peace in the face of evil and the suffering it produces. A few years later, while I was serving as a youth pastor in Abbotsford, British Columbia, I was invited by a local funeral home director, a good friend of mine, to contribute to a panel discussion on death and grief that he had organized. While preparing for that panel, I began to sort out the meaning of Romans 8.28. I, I, confront, I was confronted with it again. At least, you know, looking back, that's the memory that, that I associate with beginning to sort this verse out further. What could I do? How could I solve the intractable puzzle that was facing me? How might I find at least some sense of comfort from words that embittered me? A large part of the answer was very simple. Uh, I simply read verses 29 and 30 instead of just focusing on verse 28. So let's read the passage in its entirety again. Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Somehow, perhaps my heart had grown softer, but somehow I realized that Romans 8.28 was not about a simple exchange. There was no good for me to search for or to try to receive as a reparation for the suffering endured. The good was, had always been, and remains to this day, that God is conforming me, as he is all of his people, into the image of his Son. The good is that we are being transformed for good, no matter what our context or what evil and suffering we endure. So what does this mean? Well, first, the true good, the end to which God's children journey, is the good of, as Paul puts it in Colossians 3, being made complete in Christ. Colossians 3, 1 to 3 states, so if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. The good is that no matter what we endure in this life, God, through the Holy Spirit, is forming us into the image of Christ. A formation that will be completed when all of God's children are revealed to be truly and fully in Christ at the end. The good will be our experience of the fullness of Christ as we eternally exist in God's presence. That sounds wonderful, but what about now? What do I do about the puzzle and pain of evil and suffering in a world created to be good? How do we address Lewis's question, his cry, where is God in all of this? Christine Kulp, in her book, uh, Vulnerability and Glory, looks to the Protestant reformer Martin Luther for guidance. Luther writes in his On Councils in the Church, the holy Christian people must undergo every misfortune and persecution, all kinds of trials and evil from the devil, the world, and the flesh, as the Lord's Prayer indicates, by inward sadness, timidity, fear, outward poverty, contempt, illness, and weakness, in order to become like their head, Christ. And the only reason they must suffer is that they steadfastly adhere to Christ and God's word, enduring for the sake of Christ. Building on this assertion, Culp calls Christians to acknowledge the reality of suffering. Not to immerse themselves in suffering simply for the sake of suffering. Not to try to evade or escape suffering. Not to pretend they've somehow mastered suffering, although that's a real temptation in our, in our culture, uh, success-oriented culture. Rather, she writes, Christians and their communities must go through suffering, acknowledging it as basic to human life. Learning from Paul in Romans 8, she writes that sufferings are not the trevies of death, but the birth pangs of a divine order that extends beyond, uh, beyond history as mortals know it. There's nothing to valorize or glamorize about suffering for Culp. There's nothing to glamorize or valorize about suffering for its own sake. Given the fact of sin and evil, suffering is unavoidable, and we are called to persevere, to go through it, looking to and relying upon God. As this is not, uh, and, and is this not the very heart of following Christ and being conformed into the image of the Son, as Romans 8.29 tells us? 
In his letter to the Philippians, Paul provides further detail related to this. In Philippians 2 verse 5, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped or exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now there's something really interesting to note in this passage. The humility of the son is not just incarnational. His humility is not just associated with taking on human flesh. It was as the eternal son that he did not grasp for equality with the father, even though he is in very nature God. And we cannot imitate Christ without replicating his humility and enduring suffering as he did. This may seem a massive task, especially if you're in the throes of grief, if suffering is very real in front of you. But we are not on our own in working in the work of conforming to Christ. God's people are called, of course, to carry one another's burdens, to care for the weak, for the suffering. But as we have already seen in our journey through Romans 8, it is the Spirit who helps us in our weakness and intercedes on our behalf according to the will of God. And it is the Spirit who forms us and binds us together in love as God's people. There is no going through suffering without the Holy Spirit and the fellowship of those who are in the Spirit. These first two points outline our end to be like Christ in fullness and our strength in journeying to that end, to be in the Holy Spirit. But Romans 8, 29 to 30 also offers us hope in maybe an odd form, the doctrine of predestination. Paul writes in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. In verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. How does this difficult teaching factor into a discussion of grief and suffering? How does it factor into the trials that we go through? John Calvin is is probably uh, most popularly associated with the doctrine of predestination. And, And he taught predestination has two effects. It settles the question of who will be eternally saved and who will be eternally lost. Calvin teaches that those who are saved and those who are lost, moreover, are are eternally saved and eternally lost by the decision of God. So rather than helping helping to solve the issue of theodicy we've been discussing, uh, this seems to exacerbate it. The question of theodicy is merged here with the doctrine of salvation. So now we have to justify God's goodness and power not only with the existence of evil and suffering, but with the idea that God selects those who who will be damned to hell. It is not, according to Calvin, simply a matter that they are rejected. God rejects them. All right, this seems like a good place to wrap things up, so no, we better not do that. Uh, We obviously can't carry this through to a full discussion, but I want to offer a a simple and and humble suggestion uh, that predestination as explained by Calvin is difficult to align with the overall teaching of scripture and the mission that God, uh, that God revealed when he called Abraham. God selected Abraham uh, way back in the book of Genesis and his descendants not only to bless Abraham and to bless those who would follow after him, but so that through them he would bless all families of the earth 
This is, this is the statement in Genesis 12, verse 3, when God calls Abraham. Consequently, the idea of predestination does need to be rethought. Richard Plantinga, Thomas Thompson, and Matthew Lundberg argue in an introduction to Christian theology that God's decisive choice of Israel through Abraham and the specific individuals within that nation was always done with the intention that those chosen would participate in God's broader rescue of creation from its sin and brokenness. When we see reference to predestination then, we should not think of it as a rigid category of individual salvation or timeless decree, but as a tool God employs for his salvific purposes. The purposes he had for Israel, the purposes he has for the, for the church, the purposes that he has for all humanity. Narrowing the field back to our present context of Romans 8, Paul's use of this term should be encouraging. God's children are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. Verse 30 brings together different elements of God's call to salvation, but Paul is there just detailing what verse 29 asserts. God will see the work of conforming us into the image of his son through to completion. Eugene Peterson refers to predestination as an airport word. Uh, when you head through the tunnel marked with your destination, you are predestined to arrive there. So when you walk through the tunnel of the airport and it says Hawaii over top of it, you are predestined for sand, sun, fun. That's what's coming your way. When you walk through the tunnel with Winnipeg marked over it, depending on season, you are predestined for very cold, uh, snowy weather or mosquitoes right? No offense to anybody from Winnipeg, uh, although I, I'm sure offense was taken. Uh, so this is, he's saying this is what this word means. Now, like all analogies, that analogy ultimately breaks down. But in Philippians, Paul summarizes the point being made and drives it home, the promise encapsulated within it. He writes in Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. Here we can see the double meaning in the title of this series. We are not merely transformed for the good, but our transformation in Christ is certain. It is for good. It is secure. Why then do I no longer hate Romans 8.28? I know that through my grief, through suffering, God's purposes of shaping me into the image of Christ are not frustrated, though they are difficult. Due to the fact of sin and evil, suffering and grief are inevitable. Romans 8, 28 to 30 offers that same hope to you as it does to me because you are undoubtedly facing suffering and grief of your own. Like the actual experience of birth, there is true joy to follow suffering. We are called by God to acknowledge the reality of suffering and rather than avoiding it or pretending to master it, to go through it in the strength he provides through the spirit and the people formed by the spirit in the name of Christ. And finally, we recognize that evil and suffering cannot ultimately derail the goodness of God. What he has begun in Christ, in Christ, he will see through to completion. I don't pretend that this resolves all the questions raised by evil and suffering and the grief that inescapably follows and endures. I have found in my experience of grief that I struggle with and suffer through similar questions time and again. Grief is more complex than the simple answers we often try to apply to it. And many applications of Romans 8:28 are just that, simplistic, unhelpful, and frequently hurtful. 
But with Paul, I have found myself convinced that nothing, not even the grief we carry and the suffering and the loss, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The good news, of course, is not merely that I proclaim it today, but that in the strength of the Holy Spirit, I witness to God's goodness as I limp along in weakness and grief tomorrow, all while looking towards God. That is why in the end, rather than being frustrated by the words of Romans 8, 28, I can hear them and proclaim them along with the author of Psalm 73, who ends, who ends uh, the psalm with verse 28. For me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. I will tell of all his works. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us? Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Vimeo. We'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, ask for help, or let us know how we can pray for you. If you'd like to contribute financially, just go to westsidegathering.com forward slash giving. Until next time, peace.